We are, again, studying from Jewish mysticism and the spiritual life, classic text, contemporary reflections, edited by Lawrence Fine, Eitan Fishbane, and Orr Rose. We are studying, therefore, Hasidic texts that are explicated by a rabbi because we already can't always unpack the Hasidic texts. The Hasidic texts are based in Torah, Midrash, and Kabbalah. They, they pull freely from all those sources. Um, and these are just tiny little bites. What we say, well, that's a long one, right, is a tiny little bite about whatever it is we're talking about. That's what we can do in an evening. So we're going to do this bite from the Slonim Rebbe. And remember, rabbis were named for what towns they served, right? So the rabbi of Ger was the Gerer Rebbe. The rabbi of Slonim is the Slonim Rebbe. When I was in Duluth, they called me the Duluther Rebbe, <laughs> right? So, um, <laughs> wow, Palisade Rebbe. Uh, so that is um, that is how they are called. His his name is Rabbi Shalom Noah Berezovsky. The work he wrote was the Netivot Shalom. So we are going to look at the Slonim Rebbe, uh, who wrote this Netivot Shalom from one little chunk of his Netivot Shalom work. And he's, of course, going to draw on traditional texts and texts from Midrash that we don't know. That's why we need Rabbi Shai Held to unpack it for us, because we don't know those Midrashim and what they mean. Then Rabbi Held is going to give us his interpretation. We, of course, uh, will be explicating it for ourselves as well, so we get this multi-layered approach to studying Jewish texts. All right, so we're going to begin on page 209 of our book on faith beyond perception, which in a way, when I first read the title, because I had choose for y'all, I don't just pick the next, I try to choose which ones I feel like I can really enter and teach with you and learn with you. Um, and when I read on faith beyond perception, I'm like, well, isn't that kind of a like department of redundancy department? <laughs> Like, isn't faith already something about being beyond necessarily perception? I was like, I don't know. But I like it. I like it. Somebody want to read on page 209. Just as the Holy Torah speaks to every single Jew and to his every spiritual and physical situation, similarly, prayer is independent of all spiritual situations and emotions of the heart. Rather, it is an all-encompassing teaching that applies to every time and situation. This can be explained by reference to a passage found in Tana Debe Eliyahu Rabbah 17. 4,960,000,000 ministering angels... In case you had forgotten that number. ...stand from sunrise to sunset and declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole world is filled with his glory. And 4,960,000,000 ministering angels stand from sunset to sunrise and declare, blessed is the Lord's glory from his place. Okay, so these are the two phrases we're going to be dealing with tonight. The whole teaching is based on these two phrases. When you open the prayer book and you look at the Kedusha, you look at the Kedusha that follows the Amidah, you're used to Chaim and I just breaking into Lador Vador. But there's a whole text uh, that takes up two or three pages that comes right before Lador Vador, right, the closing passage. Um, the Kedusha comes as the apex of the service. 
service. I just had a leader in our community say to me, well, the Shema as the holiest prayer in our tradition. I'm like, uh, no, the Shema is not the holiest prayer in our tradition. First of all, to rank them, the rabbis would be like, okay, but, but if we're going to rank them, the holiest moment in the service is the Kedusha. It is when we lift ourselves on our toes three times. Why do we do that? We are joining the choir of angels praising God because that's all they do. They praise God continuously. That's all they do. And so we join that choir of angels. The moment comes, we actually become part angel, part angel. So that's the supernal moment. What do we say at that moment? We lift on our toes and say, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzivaot Melocho Haaretz Kavodo, right here, your first one. Uh, and that in your cliff notes I've given you, right, should tell you uh, the prophetic source. So both of these come from the prophets. The first is from Isaiah, the second from Ezekiel. So the rabbis give us kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Then immediately following that, we get blessed is Adonai's glory from God's place. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wonder, are these the same five billion uh, angels in each case, or are they ten no. billion? It, it seems that it is ha- four billion nine hundred thousand is half, mm-hmm. and four billion nine hundred do the other. But are they the same four billion? No, they're they're two different groups. Yes, of course, has to be because they're because the teaching is going to be that it's going to wind up to be equal. So it's it's important that they're the same number. They go home and sleep. All right. But but there's we're going to see the different takes on the teaching. Do they do it at the same time? Do they some go home and nap? Right? Do they come back in the morning? So, but but you got to know. We always have to start where we start, and we start with the liturgy of the kedusha taken from Torah, taken from the prophets. So this is exactly what you see when you open the prayer book. Okay. Yes. That I know of, no, but but I'm sure there is. There's a footnote at the, there's a footnote at the end of this uh, section that says that 496 is uh, Kabbalistically equivalent to Malchut. But other than that, I'm not aware of any significance. Malchut, kingdom. The aspect, remember God has ten flavors in the Kabbalistic system, the ten spherot, and um, Malchut, kingship, is one of them. Sovereignty, you might say, is one of them. Okay. So I just want to be clear that we're we're really not going to stray very far from this. That's why I only put those on the board. This is really what we're going to be staying with. So once we get this, we're well on our way to understanding what the heck is going on. All right. So that's a lot of angels. That's a lot of (laughs) angels. So your cliff notes, right, tell you that from from sunrise to sunset is one group saying... The first phrase, from sunset to sunrise, the second group are saying this. Okay, so we're just going to stay right there, because we're, we're, we're going to go to Scheiheld and how he unpacks it. But th- this is just so we get the facts straight about what the Salonimer Rebbe is saying. All right. And remember, this is based on the Tana Debe Eliyahu Rabbah. So this is already Midrash, right? So 
This is what we talk about, about how complex, when we talk about Kabbalah, it's like it isn't one thing. It's going to reference not only the prophets and the prayer book, which people are familiar with. They do that every day, three times a day, right? Twice or three times a day they do this. They know that. That's easy. They may or may not be fluent in the Midrash. That one group of four billion angels does this from sunrise to sunset. The other group does it from sunset to sunrise. You may or may not know that Midrash, but you should. And so probably you do. And so just just quoting that, that's not even the point. We have more to go. All right. Go on, Bert. The commentators would trouble. What relevance does sunrise and sunset have above in the angelic realm? After all, the sun is only part of this, the corporeal, is only part of this, the corporeal world. And further, why do they say holy, holy, etc., from sunrise to sunset, and blessed is the Lord from his place, specifically from sunset to sunrise? And even beyond what they raise, there's another difficulty <laughs> in that we say, as the sweet words of the assembly of the holy seraphim who thrice repeat holy unto you, as it is written by our prophet, and they call to one another and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Those facing them offer praise and say, Blessed be the Lord's glory from his place, from which it is clear that the two groups of angels make their respective declarations all at once at the very same time. All right, so the Slano Marebbe saying, You know the liturgy, and you know where it comes from, and you know the Midrash. We have three problems with the Midrash. What are our problems? Number one, what the heck is sunrise and sunset in the angelic realm? Right? That's only our experience, those of us who live here on this planet, that turns. So that's problem number one. That seems to make no sense. And God forbid the Midrash doesn't make sense. We can't have that. Number two, which means it's our difficulty to understand. Where the teacher comes to unpack, like to answer the difficulty. All right. Difficulty number one. Number two is what? Is. Where are we? And further. That they call to each other at the same time. <laughs> That's number three. Oh, two. <laughs> okay. So number two is, um, why do they say it from sunrise to sunset? And then another group says their thing from sunset to to sunrise. Why is it divided that way? What kind of Why sense? Why not have one group say it all? Why not have all of them say it all? Yeah. What or and why divide it by time? What and why these assignations to those times? Why not flip it? Why does the other group start? And it writes what what is the meaning of that? Number 3 is what Bird identified. So in the liturgy and when we open the prayer book it seems the angels call holy 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 and then answer at the same time, blessed is Adonai from God's place. It seems to all happen at the same time as part of one experience, not they're saying one line half the day and the other line the other half of the day. Those seems to be our three uh, questions the Slonim Rebbe is asking um, about the Midrash. All right. The explanation, Bert? The explanation of this is that there are 4,960,000,000 ministering angels whose service above has the aspect of transparency, Beirut, that is, the aspect of sunrise. They see that the whole world is filled with God's glory. 
And there are 4,960,000,000 ministering angels whose service is from a place of divine hiddenness, according to the aspect of sunset, in that they do not see transparently that God's glory fills the whole world. They say, blessed is the Lord's glory from his place, that is, even though they do not perceive that God's glory fills the whole world, they nevertheless know that he is in his holy abode, and they proclaim, blessed is the Lord's glory from his place. Aha. Right? Good. Close. We're done. Right? <laughs> now we, on the explanation, now we understand. All right. So why is holy, 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 all God's glory fills the whole world. Why is that said from sunrise to sunset? Because you can see it. It's daytime. There's light there. It's transparent. Yeah. It's lit up. God's presence lights the world. Everything is that you, of course, look at the butterfly and the little caterpillar. They were once connected. And of course God's here. Correct. Bithi root. In transparently they see. So it's a metaphor that if it's in the light of day, it's because you see God's, not see, but, but you perceive God's presence as filling all the world. The other group does not. That, so that group says instead, Blessed is Adonai's glory from God's place. What is what is the difference? They say we don't experience it, but we know God is there. And blessed is Adonai's We know he's there, giving us the blessings, but we actually are not able to experience it. That is why they say it at the time of darkness. Metaphor sunset to sunrise. Because in the dark... We just have to trust that God is in God's place. We don't perceive it. So we just, what we can say is, well, then blessed is God, essentially, wherever God is. Even though I don't perceive it right now. So what, so what for, for the rabbis, God forbid we should say God has a place because maloko ha'aretz kabodo, God's glory fills there's no place devoid of God. The second group, I think, is saying, we don't perceive it, but we trust it somewhere here. Even here. Like, So I'm just going to acknowledge, I bless God from God's, but I don't perceive it. I don't experience it. Um, I have trouble... Uh understanding whether when Shia is speaking and when the rabbi is The rabbi is still speaking. We're not to Shia yet. Shia starts here. Okay. All right. Go on, Bert. Each of these groups makes a respective declaration, each one according to its root and essence. The first group, which sees God's glory clearly, is not greater than the second, which does not see it. Nor does one group speak with greater or lesser enthusiasm than the other. But rather, each turns to the other, and they make their declaration together simultaneously. Okay. So we had a discussion about, wait, does it happen together, or does it happen half the day and half the day? So the Slonim Rebbe says, the first group, the one that sees God's glory clearer, is not better than the second group. 
And they don't do it with less enthusiasm. I love that. I love that line. I don't do it with less enthusiasm when I don't perceive it. Let's hold on to that. That's already, I think, a radical like concept. Let's hold on to it. Um, but rather, they turn to each other and they say it together. Equally, with equal enthusiasm. Blessed is God who I experience right here in this beautiful flower. And I have no evidence at all that God is here. Blessed is God. But if, if there's a time involved, sunrise and sunset... How can they then be saying it? So let's go, so let's see what, very good question, Linda. So let's see what the Sloan Marebba is gonna say about what sunrise to sunset means. Bert? Through the, through this teaching, our sages of blessed memory instruct us in the path of prayer. Sometimes a Jew prays to God from the aspect of sunrise. Ah. And sometimes from the aspect of sunset. Aha. It shouldn't make any difference to one whether he feels with the entirety of his heart and the flesh that God's glory fills the world and he sees the creator, may he be blessed everywhere in creation, or whether in contrast, right now he only believes that blessed is the Lord's glory from his place, because ultimately they are one and the same. The same delight that God derives from one group, God also derives from the other. And so we also revere and sanctify according to the aspect of each of these groups, whether at a time of divine hiddenness or divine manifestation. Our God is one God, and the prayer we order is pure and accepted like the sweet words of the assembly of the Holy Seraphim. All right, Linda. So what does the Slona Marebbe do with this idea of sunrise and sunset? Um, sometimes. Sometimes uh, it's as if it's sunrise, and sometimes it's as so the Midrash doesn't mean, God forbid, literally one group is going from sunrise to sunset and the other from sunset to sunrise. The Rather, words say, the words that they say and how they say it. They are based, one says one set of words or a different set of words based on one's perception of light, revealedness, or darkness, hiddenness. Right, So he makes a big move that I think is a hugely insightful move right? to say, it's not literal night and day, God forbid. That means nothing in the angelic realm. And of course they were there in the prayer book together. So, But, but he's not going to dump the Midrash. He's quoting the Midrash to bring it as a way to teach about we experience God's being manifest and God's being hidden. In our changing circumstances, it has nothing to do with God, and prayer is the same in either case. But isn't even the use of the word perception kind of questionable in the sense that as as finite, imperfect beings, our perceptions are constantly wrong? Correct. Right? And Correct. So, so you may you what you what you perceive may not comport with what reality is anyway. Which is his point. Right. What I perceive is not the point. Prayer needs to be constant, and we are given liturgy for both states of our perception. Prayer is is independent of perception. Correct. Correct. I think that's his big argument here. Exactly right. Carol. Does sunrise mean 
I think every time we see the image of darkness, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think the language of is universally, by the way, outside of Judaism, light is associated with wisdom and I don't know, like, good stuff. Good stuff. And dark is, you know, and what I love about this teaching, like so many of our teachings, is that he says over and over and over again, they are equal. Right? That we don't denigrate the one, because that's the temptation in the religious life. In community, when we're talking about wisdom and intelligence, right? People are intelligent. They're bright. We call them bright. They're very bright, right? Someone who perceives differently, right, is denigrated um, and is dark, is dim. So, um, right. Did you have your hand up? (laughs) Which one? Okay, so <laughs> start from the beginning. Why it doesn't matter that it's Okay, so right, so Midrash says one group, you know, prays the first one during the Midrash says during the light of day because it's so evident to it's God's revealedness. It's when we perceive you. It's a they, they perceive God from this place of transparency. They see God everywhere, those angels. Then there's a group of angels. They say there's at night because they don't see that. It is God's hiddenness that they are addressing. And so they do that in the dark of night and say, blessed is God in God's place, kind of like, I just have to trust. They trust that that they know. They trust that that is so. That God is present. They do not perceive it. What if you only had the last? One? That kind of seems to cover both cases. The last one. So here's the challenge with our tradition. Mm-hmm. They're working within this. Both are here. So part of it is to say, unless we're going to be Mordechai Kaplan, mm-hmm. and say if we really don't mean it. Mm-hmm. Let's not say it. So we're we're going to look at that reality and that possibility. Or you have to say it's here already. The kedusha's here. So what does it mean that there are two different expressions that could look like they don't exactly match? If all the world is filled with God's glory, what is it to say? Blessed is God in God's or from God's place. They seem kind of different. You're, you're saying it, no. You're saying number two is. Is God's in every place. Okay. So, but we're working with a C-door that is set now. It wasn't always, by the way, and it was set late. It was set very late, about the time of the printing press. Once you have a printing press, it stops being so fluid. But um, but once it's set, and we say these two lines, and they seem contradictory, and the Midrash makes them contradictory, the Slonim is going to bring an... He's going to bring a teaching that could be, I hope, profound for us as a spiritual set of insights. So if you stop thinking of it sort of as day, night, and more uh, think about it the way most people think of it, as that when things are good, it's easy to see God. When you're in a bad place and things are bad, it's harder to see God. So that's the other shift. I guess I didn't get... Right. So the Midrash makes the one distinction, and then, thank you, the Slonim Rebbe says... God forbid we should think there's day and night where the angels live. It must mean something else. What must 
daytime during the light mean? Transparency, which means essentially when we perceive God as being everywhere. And the opposite is when we don't. And that's the times of darkness. They're states of perception. Okay. And, and that they are equal. That both sets of angels say it at the same time. It is equally, and here's the thing that he moves to that I love. What do we mean when we say Shmai Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad? We mean that God encompasses both of those realities and delights, if we're going to personify God for a minute, God for a minute, Freudian slip there, sorry. Um, Personify God for a second. Um, God delights in both equally. That is a big move. Now let's go to Rabbi Held. Reuben, um, who's going to unpack, wh- why does he bring this text? Like, what? why did the editors bring this text? They obviously think it has something to say to us. So let's see what that is. All right. Musa. Wait, drop down, Bert, to here. The confident. We're in the, the second third of the first, I mean, of the second paragraph. Page 211. Yeah. On page 211. Can I make one point first? Please. <laughs> You're talking about this in terms of the Kedusha. Yeah. But these two lines, yeah. which come from completely different prophets, yeah. and were strung together or stitched together by the rabbi, yeah. are also a part of the Shachrit, the morning service, when we talk about the transition from nighttime to daytime and from dark to light as well. Mm-hmm. And I think... This may be why that was put there. In the morning? In the morning. What about the transition from day to night? It's not at night. Ah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Start for Can us, Bert. start with the, the confident? On 211. The confident perception that God's that glory. God's glory fills the world and yet makes space for the ongoing journey of those who are still on the path towards this perception and hence need to ask again and again... Yes, but where? More radically, the text implicitly admits that none of us is permanently and unshakably at the destination, that none of us owns the perception of God's presence as an eternal possession. We are, all of us, vulnerable to the vicissitudes of faith and prone to flashes of light followed by periods, sometimes prolonged periods, of relative or even total darkness. Put differently, we might say, that there is no once and for all in the religious life, no perception that cannot dissipate as surely as it, dis- as it appears. By projecting the dynamics of human faith upwards, that is, by suggesting that angels too are susceptible to the fluctuations of religious perception, the liturgy subtly comforts those of us still always on the path. Even the angels share in the variegated complexity of faith. All right. So what Rabbi Shai Held is saying is this is a big move by the rabbis. Because as Rick said, I mean, it's there. You can just take one out. Just edit one out if one covers all of it, right? But Rabbi Held is saying that the Slonim Rebbe is lifting up the fact that there's a value to interpreting these as very different and keeping them on the same page. Because if this is put into the mouths of angels, we perceive God everywhere and exactly the same number of angels, exactly at the same time, say, 
Maybe not. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> but we bless God anyway from that place. And they're equally delightful to the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be God. Isn't that a radical statement? If we move, if we move in our experiences of trust, of faith, and the angels do too, doesn't that free us a little bit to say, and here's what I want to say about it is, doesn't that free us a little bit to say, okay, even if I don't believe it, can I still say it today? I was thinking, so when we wake up, we say this morning prayer, and then I go, well, what do we, what prayer do we say when we go to bed? We say the Shema that God has won. So, you know, like metaphorically, we do go through this cycle of lightness, and then we all go to sleep. We're all in darkness. What's the first thing we say in the morning? Shema. Right. God is one. I think that's part of the reason it's here. Your your point is well taken. It's right here when he says God is one, right? Because what he's saying is Adonai Echad, the Shema that we say at night, the Shema that we say in the morning, we may be in very different places when those happen. It matters not to the eternal. It matters not to the universe, capital U. We shift and change. Our perceptions are flawed. Our brains are very, very limited in what they can perceive, right? And and yet, the creator delights in our expression of blessing, of prayer in either state. In either state. Okay. So this is where they introduce faith, the idea of faith, uh, as opposed to perception. So, but sometimes we pray out of perception, you hold a great grandchild, and it's not hard to say, "Blessed be the Holy One." But I think the rabbi here is saying that perception is not that uh, dependable. Mm-hmm. Correct. That you, no matter what, you must have faith. Perception, very well stated, Reuben. Sit in. Perception is not all that reliable, or we could say is. Um, Mutable. And, and faith, a relate, or, and, and I don't love that word. So I'm struggling myself with some of how to talk about this. Cause I don't like that word very much. Uh, faith. Hmm? Faith. faith. Sounds irrational. It does. And, and in I'm a way, Christian. and I don't mind being irrational, very, trust very me, Christian. but. But but I don't like it because it somehow says it's... It's not true, but you believe it anyway. It's not true, but I believe it anyway. And that's the part I don't like. But but to Reuben's point, like even when we don't sense it, even in the darkness, is there something we can affirm? Right? That I don't feel it right now, but I can affirm that life is precious, that life is good, that life is worth living even on the days... When it isn't, <laughs> like when I don't feel it, when I don't perceive it, is there something that we can affirm no matter what? And I may need to change my language. I may need to change my words. I may decide to do yoga instead of he who provides it for others at his home. Just saying, y'all are all welcome there on Thursdays. Um, 
I might do yoga if we're talking about us, right? Rather than pray. Is doing yoga isn't praying. Well, that's my point. Like, is there some way that I can engage in affirming something bigger, something bigger that is worth my consistent showing up? regardless of what I'm perceiving as it shifts and changes, as it's flawed, as it's limited. (laughs) And it's, it's very interesting to me that you're the one who brings it back to that word. So piety seems to suggest a kind of ignoring of the dark and suffering and and the ability to do wrong. It just means you don't you do this stuff anyway. So so it's doing it anyway. Is there stuff we can do anyway? And what and I think what <coughs> what the editors are bringing this text to explore is they know they're not writing this for Orthodox Jews. Because Orthodox Jews already feel bound. They already feel obligated. This book, I believe, is written for those of us who don't. Is there value in feeling compelled to affirm something, to show up somehow, even when we don't perceive it, to act anyway? You know what? That's most of what has in the prayer book. But that's most of what's in the prayer book. They don't understand. But right now, what right now we call it behavior. We're teaching them Jewish behaviors that help them feel like they belong to the Jewish people. We hope they will figure out at some point the meaning for them, and that that meaning, of course, will change of those behaviors. The idea, though, is to inculcate in them a sense that this is what we do. So I'm not, I'm still resistant. I don't know why. I resist piety. I maybe it's because of the cultural overlays or the ways that people have been written off as pietistic, and I don't I don't consider pietistic. Or that's used about it yeah. that I that I think I've taken on a little bit. So pi- piouser than thou, <laughs> however you say that. But I mean, the piety, the way at least we're talking about it now, uh, really is a matter of shoulds and should not. So, but I'm not saying he's not saying should. Let's go to let's go to more of what he says because I think he. I'm, I'm seeing or thinking about four billion plus um, angels, and, and I when I think of four billion plus angels, I just think of um, I don't know something like a space, and as mm-hmm. we move through the wherever they're going, things change and. and, and and I think both the Midrash, the Slonim Rebbe, and Rabbi Held would say we should 
We should find a way to say one of these every day. So there is should involved. Let's let's mm-hmm. keep going. But, but it doesn't uh, say this <coughs> is the way to do it. You know. It says you have a couple of options, <laughs> right? All right, but but it, only do what you wanted. It gets interesting. I think we have to move ahead. To I think so too. Let's go to page two twelve. Page 212 in the middle of that Hugh Tonkin paragraph. At the end of one of those lines, it says, the first more confident group. The first more confident group makes its proclamation during the light of day, while the second, somewhat more modest group, speaks its words during the darkness of night. Rabbi Berezovsky perceptively develops the insight implicit in the Midrash, insisting that night and day here are not times of day, mm-hmm. for what relevance do sunrise and sunset have in the highest angelic realms, but rather polar states of perception. Okay, dr- drop down to neither group at... Neither group. Oh, there. Yeah. Okay. The paragraph starts yeah. at okay. that, the, the central thrust. The central thrust of the Nedivot Shalom is to insist that neither group is greater than the other, nor does greater vividness of perception necessarily imbue one with a higher spiritual status. On the contrary, Rabbi Berezovsky tells us, each group play, prays with equal passion and enthusiasm. Hit, hit, hit and each one turns to and beckons the other as if in recognition of its respective greatness and prays simultaneously with it. Ah, so not only do they pray at the same time, but the one group turns to the other group to acknowledge its relevance, its importance, and its place in the room or in the heavens, mm-hmm. right? So not only at the same time and not only are, are they both there, he imagines that they turn to each other and acknowledge that your per, your way of you know perceiving things right now is as valid and as just and as pious and as whatever as mine. There are no infidels in this room. There's no heretics or infidels here. And there's no Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives and whatever else we get into when we get into binary, right, wrong, me, them, right? Okay, not okay, in, out, self, other. All those ways we bifurcate reality and split it off and say one of them is okay and one of them is not. Or one of them is accurate perception and one of them is not. What does it mean that they project the rabbis onto the angels that both are equally valid? As opposite as they are, your perception is as holy and as valid as mine. That's kind of radical. They Hmm? both deal with God. One of them doesn't walk away. (laughs) First of all, they both stay. (laughs) That helps. Right? So drop down to the bottom of 212. The message to the Rebbe's listeners could not be clearer. Some of us are blessed with fine spiritual antennae and may perceive the presence of God everywhere and at all times, while others of us may perceive less clearly 
or less often or both. But let us avoid the temptation to rank ourselves based on degree of perception. I'm a better Jew than you. I'm a better Jew than you. Or I meditate all the time, so I'm better than all the Jews. I'm a Jew who left it, and I'm really spiritually perceptive now of God in every moment through, and I'm not picking on meditators, like we meditate here. But right, that temptation to say, because I perceive God much more often and much more clearly, I clearly, I'm a much more spiritual person. And that is spiritually better. (laughs) Drop down to, no, both groups are equal. In fact, the Nitivot Shalom subtly points out the depth of your perception may well be entirely beyond your control and hence reflect no achievement or failure on your part. After all, he reminds us, each group sees according to its root and essence. What if we really took seriously that happiness, spirituality, on some level, in terms of the perception of it, right, is genetic. None of us would argue that. Already, they were ahead of us. They call it your root and essence. Fine, isn't it really the same thing? We have a set point. Some folks are just really open and really available all the time to spiritual experience, right? To more esoteric levels of being. Okay, that's great. Others of us are not. We tend to be a little anxious. We tend to be a little obsessive compulsive. We tend to be a little ruminating and perseverating. And we tend to be a little low, right? (laughs) Okay, fine. It's your root and essence. It's who you are. It's your set point, fine. Guess what? Not an excuse. Not to open the book, right? That's the part I love. They're both there. Maybe it is our set point. Maybe it is just who we are. It doesn't make one group better. That's a radical statement for a group of people who make their living, right? Drashing these texts. All right. So... Drop down to the very bottom of 2.13, the last words on the page. It is this fundamental lesson that Rabbi Berezovsky seeks to teach us. Far more important than my subjective awareness or lack thereof in this particular moment is the overarching commitment of my life. Mochin de Gadlut, big mind, Yes, of course, we believe expanded consciousness is a good thing. But the value of my worship does not decrease during mochin dekatnut, small mind. When it's like, oh my God, why did I say that thing in class? Oh my God, it's so embarrassing. Now they're going to know that I didn't know that part. I didn't read the footnote. Richard read the footnote. I didn't read the footnote. Why? So when we're in that place, it's no less valuable our prayer that we offer, even in that, and, I'm, and of course he's saying, Rabbi Held is saying, it's not just prayer. It's what is the overarching commitments, what are they in our lives to which we owe our loyalty and fidelity and practice regardless of our perceptions. And I think he does a beautiful job 
lifting some of those up. Drop down to the paragraph that begins the Slonimer's lesson. The Slonimer's lesson about a mature faith can be easily translated to other crucial domains of our life as well. When we say that we love our spouses, what exactly do we mean? Right? At bottom, of course, the love of another is not, or certainly not just, a fleeting feeling, a passing fancy, a merely subjective experience. Again, what we declare is an existential commitment to act lovingly even in those moments when the depth of emotion and the intensity of passion somehow elude us. Now, I know that's not true for any of the married people in this room, partnered people, divorced people, people who've been in relationships. I know you've never experienced this, but just imagine. (laughs) Ruben says only those who were alive have experienced it. But of course, it's our children, it's our dogs, it's truly, and I'm being serious, what, what he's saying is, when we say we love someone, or some creature, or some being, do we say, oh, so I'm going to act only a certain way when I feel that I love you? No, we act, we're, or we think we should, to Linda's point, we should act lovingly, even when... We just want to kick the little, right? Like, even when we feel none of the things one would associate with love, our commitment is to some overarching existential reality that isn't dependent on our feelings. For our grandchildren, for our adult children, for our roommates, for our parents, for our 12 year olds. It isn't dependent on what I feel. It is dependent on my commitment to loving this person, this being, myself. Linda? I was going to say, it just reminds me, I used to say to my son, it's a good thing you're cute. Because <laughs> no, that's the only thing that saves them sometimes. <laughs> that they are super cute. Drop down to this core human truth. Because that's what you're talking about, Linda. What you just mentioned was what we call chesed. <laughs> right? Or And I would go so far as to say chen. So chesed is usually translated horribly, but there's not a better way to do it that I know of. Loving kindness. Chen is grace. Both, along with rachamim, compassion, mercy, they imply it is not earned. It is my commitment to embody chesed and chen. Even when I get home from teaching at 9.30 and really am not interested in hearing complaints about fill in the blank. (laughs) My overarching commitment in saying I love my child is to say, I will act with chesed and chen even when I don't feel it. Back to page, uh, Those are the angels of darkness saying, I trust my love for this child lives somewhere in the universe. I just can't access it right now. But I act on trust that it's, that it's there, that that defines, it's definitive of 
my reality, my world, what I want to be, what I am committed to having, which is a loving relationship. A lot of us weren't raised that way. They may have still loved us. I believe that. But when you're yelled at and shamed and treated in a certain way, it's a breach of the commitment to acting with a loving intention, no matter whether you feel it or not. And that may mean you need to go to your room right now, right? And just, good night, love you, because mommy's really tired and can't deal with this right now, and I won't act in a loving way if I do, right? Get, but that's, a, right? So does, does that make sense? You're, you're looking like... No, no, no. Okay. So I think even hard conversations and really hard actions that are truly guided by chesed and chen are also loving. They are also loving. And our struggle, I think, there, I think one of the reasons you bring it up is what, when you say, but what about, the disjunctive but is, I think, just tell me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is about, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel loving, right? Like, I'm going to have to do something really hard, right, to cause a, something that could be hurtful, probably will be hurtful to this person. And I think the pain for us around that, or not the pain, but the process for us around that is to really check in and check out, is it chesed and chen, or is it something else, right? That, And if it's truly out of chesed, even if it's wrong, I believe both the rabbis and the Slonimah Rebbe and Rabbi Shai Held would say that's all we can go on at any given time. But we have to be really clear that this thing I'm about to do that I'm calling tough is about tough love. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I, And I don't mean to point to you anymore. I have to check that out a lot. I'm getting ready to say something that I think is about a loving truth how do I say that? Um, or how do I do something really hard in a relationship that I know needs to happen if I really love that person? So I'm not enabling, so I'm not, you know, then turning around and having it come out sideways because I didn't set limits and boundaries. Even if it's hurtful to the other person, it doesn't mean it's not loving. My work, if I'm committed to an overarching value of loving this person, is to just check out honestly Am I motivated in this action or this statement by love? And if so, even if it's wrong, because we're not always going to be right. We studied that text, didn't we? We're not always going to get it right. But we haven't breached our commitment, right, to showing up and affirming the, the need and truth of our lives to be to act lovingly with people in our lives. And we will even leave that and we will breach that and we will screw that up too. Don't get me wrong. We'll betray that. That's okay. But are we affirming what we want, what we should be, what we think we should do? Are we showing up for that? And are we engaging in practices like some for some people saying this a few times a day in community or alone in, in the living room? Are we sh- are we doing yoga? Are we engaging in practices that help cultivate our commitment to showing up even when we don't feel it? The rabbi associates all this with faith. If Correct. I, if I could quote from the middle of page 213, 
he offers a stunning piece of consolation to those not able to perceive God's presence everywhere. And then in the next paragraph he says, but if it's a source of comfort, these words also represent a profound challenge. We're called to recognize that faith is not primarily a subjective experience. Well, you can read it as well as I can. But that's basically, he is associating all this with faith Correct. rather than perception. Correct. Because he's, in other words, I think we're saying the same thing. You'll know, And you're right to call me on avoiding the word faith. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that he's saying... If, if it all's based on perception, like I think Bert was going there earlier, if we only do what we feel like or what I think in the moment, we're all over the place. If we only do what's rigid, like, you know, like this with absolutely, then we're just automatons and we're robots. And is that any better? It's this floating between perceiving, because it's easy to trust when I perceive. It's a lot harder when I'm not perceiving myself as loving when I'm not perceiving this as a loving universe, when I don't, when I don't perceive that this universe is filled with God's glory, with divinity, with that it's all holy, when I, it's much harder to trust that that is so, when I don't perceive it. I think what he's getting at ultimately here is that if you only do it when it feels good, if you only think of God when God comes and hits you in the head, you're not growing. You're not, you're not getting any closer to God. It's in the moments when you don't feel God hitting yourself in the head, when you don't see God like today in the news. That's the real test. For the Slonim Rebbe, I would say you're right. For Rabbi Held, I would say his interest is not primarily in getting closer to God. I, and, and I'm not putting that in his mouth. That's how I'm reading him. I'm not sure that's his primary interest because I'm going to read at the bottom of 2.14 in a minute, which I think is the point. Richard, did you want to say no, something was, before we go there? Well, no, because what I wanted to talk about is in the middle of 2.15. Okay. So All right. First. So chesed, we just talked, you heard me go on and on about chesed, right? This core human truth applies to the life of chesed as well. On the one hand, Torah ideally prods us to cultivate an integrated personality in which the inner experience, love, matches the outer behavior, kindness. Drop down a few sentences. A life of true chesed means that I perform acts of chesed even when the inner state of love eludes me. I visit the sick, for example, regardless of what I happen to feel at a particular moment, whether compassion or fear, connection or repulsion. I don't wait to go to the hospital till I can regard everybody I see, right, with great... Uh, I may go in and feel sick to my stomach the whole time I'm there. doesn't really matter. Do we want it to be integrated? Of course. But a lot of our lives, it's not. And some of my favorite teachers have said, most of our lives, it's not. Most of our lives is the second line say a lot of our teachers. And we have peak experiences of perceiving holiness and what I would call, right, godliness. Um, and very quickly they're gone and we live the rest of our lives in the shadow of those moments. And we're in here every Friday night anyway. Right, let's go to 215. 
But our commitment to action remains even when my emotions or perceptions just won't seem to cooperate. Richard, tell us what you're wanting to point to next. Okay. Well, I'm uh, in the last paragraph on 215. He says that uh, a lack a lack of Mohin... Look, look where my highlight begins. <laughs> okay. So I'm, no, I'm, I'm just above it. A lack of mochin to God, Luke. Oh, okay, right, that's right. Hilarious. So, a lack of mochin to God, Luke, in this moment <laughs> is not a sign of failure or of spiritual poverty, but neither is it an excuse to give up and turn away from God. And I'm a little confused by that because he seems to be undercutting his entire argument at that point. Because? Because up until this point, we basically been in agreement that, okay, whether you perceive or don't perceive, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to rank you or say whether you're right or wrong. But you can't make the decision to turn away. Correct. And so, and, and I think that, uh, for, for, for him to, to, to talk to people who went through what they went through, 70 and 80 years ago mm-hmm. and say you have no right to turn away and and uh, you know and therefore you're sort of in this lower place because you have turned away I think is unfair uh-huh it's just an observation right um, so I, I just don't know that he's saying, he's not saying you must that, turn. that turning away would make you a failure I think he's saying Showing up, even in a state of mochin de katnut, small-mindedness, is not a failure. No, but he's saying, but he is saying, it's a, la- a lack of mohin de gadlut. Right. A lack of that is not an excuse to give up and turn away. Right, because too many times we say, if I can't show up with my full heart, right. I need to not show up. But he, but it's almost as if he's saying the decision to turn away. Is okay. a priori wrong. So what if we what if we substituted godliness instead of God? Would you feel the same way? Because I think even what happened to people 70, 80 years ago mm-hmm. does not entitle them to act in a way that's not loving, that's not oh. godly. Oh, okay, all right. I don't care what you've been through. Right. To turn away from the enterprise mm-hmm. of behaving or finding an overarching set of Things that that you are going to affirm in your life, whether you like are in touch with them or not, right now, it, there's no, there's, there's okay. not an excuse. All right. All right. So what? So to, so to, so to paraphrase it, and even, and even not even use godliness or whatever. You're you're never given permission to become a nihilist. Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. It's not a question of you, right or wrong. You're That's never right. given a permission to be a nihilist if you're a Jew. Oh, right. right? That you, we don't get to throw up our hands and say, so screw the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm done. We, right. It, I'm not, and maybe he's, maybe somebody who says that's wrong is wrong. <laughs> but, but we feel like there's a bottom line that we draw to say over that, we do, we, we, some teachers do feel there's a line once you step across. We, we gotta draw the line somewhere, and the line is you don't get to be a nihilist. Mm-hmm. You don't get to. Mm-hmm. We gotta stay in this business, however hard and messy and crazy it is, however dark it gets, 
We have to stay. And, and what I love is his parenthetical or from the other. Right. He says quickly after saying turning away from God or as I have emphasized from the human other out of our own pain, out of our own darkness, out of our own lack of perception of meaning or value to it all at all. We don't get to turn away from the godly, from the human other, no matter how much we want to. I just am equating with what you're saying, which even when you're in that, those dark moments, to pray, it's, it's the same thing. It's the gratitude, it's the gratitude of something bigger than where we are. So even the science, I'm telling you, backs it up. Right? right? It shifts, right? Because we can't feel both at the same time. Right. We can't feel like, you know, I want to blow the whole thing up <laughs> at the same time as we're grateful for puppies. We just, we can't. Like, and that's what science is telling us. Our brains can't do both at the same time. So we have the ability to pick one to force, you know, the condition of the other out of the way, if only for 30 seconds. But that helps, you know, stop the spiral and the cycle down into nihilism. I want to go back to the paragraph before that. Okay. (laughs) I think it's, at least to me, this was the most powerful point. Okay. That he made, he says, I'll read this, in a movement that so emphasizes the importance of kavanah intention. I guess he means... Hasidism. Yeah. The Slonimer offers a crucial counterweight. If an exclusive focus on norms can be stultifying and even deadening... I assume Meaning normative orthodoxy right, that Hasidism right. was, uh, was an answer to. Right. The flip side, an unmitigated obsession with subjective states in turn can endanger a dangerous, engender a dangerous descent into narcissistic self-preoccupation, as Abraham Joshua Heschel, Thomas Merton, and countless other spiritual masters have taught us, there can be no authentic self-realization without self-transcendence. And to me, that gets back to the point you were talking about with perception, because perception is all about me. It's about me, 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 me. And if I never get beyond me, then I don't have the whole picture. To me, that's what, that's part of the, this paradox of these two things simultaneously. God is everywhere, and so I am part of God, and God is right next to me, but God is more than me. Mm-hmm. God right. is in some other place. And we live in a time, Correct. this comes out of the 60s, when people were just saying, well, I am God, God is me, and does that mean if everybody died, there would be, God would be dead? Or if as long as I'm still here, God's yeah, alive. God's alive. <laughs> right? Here, right. Was God here before there were people? Right. Um, Bigger question. But it, but it is the it is the question on some level of our time, especially in liberal Jewish community, as we keep talking about, right? Does there need to be some set of agreements that we make? I was just at a lecture today by Rabbi Yehuda Kurtzer of the Hartman Institute with a bunch of other rabbis. And he was teaching about can we in non-Orthodox Judaism have a value beyond pluralism to the extent that we have moral imperatives that then lead us to say, even within this community, 
especially within this community, there are heresies. Is obligation up? It's that same question. And I was like, so that's deep, right? Because really, pluralism has been like the flag that we wave, right? And okay, fine, that's great. Are there heresies that we need to say ad con to hear and no further, right? That And that past that, and he was talking in this case about gender equality, um, but but I was like, wow, you know, thinking about certain things happening in the news, and I mean, I just, I, I, I do, I think it's an interesting way for us as non-orthodox who usually react to all those terms. Is there a way for us to start reconstructing it's, it's, it's some of those challenge. ideas? Because if we don't, then we're back in the '60s, sitting and staring at our navels. Right. So all of these ideas that we share in here. How disgusting. Some of us. <laughs> Sorry. Know what you were okay, doing sh- less. Yeah. Right? Sorry. So shh. One more. One more. Left. Question. Can you repeat this from the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. It's online. It's a podcast. Go to iTunes. Go to our website. I just. Before we leave, I just wanted to share, and part of the reason we do this kind of learning is because it isn't just in this room. We take all of this with us, and it percolates, and it's swirling, and um, and so as I prepared this class, prepared the text I'm wandering to, and I went to pick up an old book on my shelf. Sometimes I just go by feel, like which is the one that, that's talking right now. Um, and this is the one I pulled. It's very old. And God braided Eve's hair by Danny Siegel, the poet. Um, and uh, it was published in 1976. And I swear, I turned to maybe two poems. Here's the second one I read. Psalm 75. The Lord's love is wide as Levi Yitzchak's heart. Sometimes. Encompassing the feed for cattle, even unto chicken eggs and gophers for snakes. High as Rocky Mountain peaks, reflected in the mirror of the lake, so high is his graciousness. Sometimes. (laughs) Giving life, letting grand old men die in the comfort of their homes, filling the time flies interim with scenes of many colored joy. His light shines everywhere. Almost. As through Hadassah's windows, fracturing the rays in dancing shades, his light is a guide. It is a warm, always changing happening of silence music. Almost always. And this sometimes, almost always, is enough. For in this light is hope and comfort and a hidden answer. <laughs>